hundreds of years ago, before films even existed, there was a day when that was the case, hard to imagine, I know, but hundreds of years ago, before films even existed, people would gather around the campfire and tell one another stories. And often, these would be true stories that were passed down from one generation to the next in order to preserve them down through time. Now, what we have in our Bible today, especially in the Old Testament, is a collection of these stories. And what we tend to do nowadays is read a few verses at a time, or if we're feeling particularly spiritual or really very, very adventurous, we might even read a whole chapter. But the books of the Bible were intended to be taken as a whole. Now, often in our desire to drill down deep and get as much significance out of every individual syllable we can, we run the risk of losing the big picture. So what we're going to do this morning is a little bit different from what we'd normally do, a little different from what we'd normally do individually as we read the Bible, also quite a bit different from what we'd normally do as a church as we gather together on a Sunday. But it's going to be this morning far more in keeping with how things were done back in biblical times. What we're going to do is we're going to sit back and listen to a whole story. It's a story of a lady called Esther. The book of Esther is found kind of halfway through the Old Testament, and it's pretty much got a bit of everything, apart from sci-fi, not a whole lot of that going on, but there's plenty of romance, a fair bit of comedy, lots of action and intrigue, a little bit of spying going on, plenty of historical detail, and a little bit of gore for all those who like the horror as well. Now, I'm afraid we haven't managed to get any popcorn in today, and although we tried, the school wouldn't allow us to light a fire, uh, but we do have a professional storyteller in our midst. So, without any further ado, would you like to put your hands together for Anna O'Brien? Thank you. Hello, everybody. How are you today? Oh, my goodness. We need to warm you up. Okay. Open your arms really wide. Even you. Yes, thank you. And open your mouth really wide. Wow. What did you have a breakfast, Adam? And your nostrils. And everything. And say, pumpkin face. Ready? Pumpkin face. Now close up everything really, really small. Everything squeezed. And say, raisin face. Ready? Raisin face. Good, let's have another pumpkin face. Pumpkin face and raisin face. Good. You feeling a bit warmer? Thank you, Sam. Woo! You see, I have to warm myself up as well, otherwise I go, mm, once upon a time there was. No, I won't do that. So, are you ready for a story? Yes. Good. Once upon a time, a long time ago, there lived a king. His name was Xerxes. King Xerxes ruled over the Persian Empire when it was at its greatest. He ruled over 127 provinces that stretched all the way from Egypt to India. He was one of the most powerful men in the world, and he knew it. He ruled with an iron fist. He was unapproachable. If you came into the king's presence without an invitation, 
you would get your hot head, your hot head, your head chopped off before you'd even had chance to explain why you were there. Unless the king was feeling particularly merciful, unusually merciful, and he would extend a golden scepter that would allow you to come forward unharmed. But most of the time, <laughs> got it? Not only was this king mighty and unapproachable, he was also filthy rich. And he decided he would show off all of his wealth. I will hold a banquet, he said, that will show off the splendor and glory of my majesty. <laughs> it was to last for six months, because it would take over six months to show off all of the king's wealth. And the palace was dressed as never before. There were marble pillars swathed in linen of blue and white and purple. And there were couches of gold and silver on mosaic pavements of mother of pearl. And there were goblets of wine. The wine flowed freely, and each goblet had a unique design. No one had ever seen anything like it. It was a great party. The king was enjoying himself, drinking wine and getting very merry. And by the end of, to be precise, 187 days, the king was extremely merry. And he said, this is a fine party, but we're missing the fine form of a woman. Call for my queen, Queen Vashti, to come and show her beauty to us all. When the servant went to the queen's quarters, where Queen Vashti was holding her own party for her girly friends, which you can kind of imagine what they were doing. They were probably watching period dramas. Yeah, this is my kind of party. Period drama, cup of tea and some scones. Aren't I living? Well, it wasn't quite the same party. Queen Vashti was probably doing her nails and her makeup, and the girls were talking about boys and sharing stories. And when the servant came in and commanded that she go and see the king, she said, mm-mm-mm. If you think that I'm going to move my pretty little body just because the king wants me there, he's got another thing coming. <laughs> me and my girlfriends, we are chilling here right now, so you can tell the king to go away. When the king heard this, he was furious. This woman will know my wrath. I will. I will. What will I do? Advisors. What will I do? Oh, yes. What shall I do? Hello. Kill her. Kill her. <laughs> you said you liked gore, didn't you? Yeah. I quite like that idea. Can I ask another advisor? Thank you so much. One of the other advisors, far less wise than Ben over here, a little more graceful, gracious, graceful, yeah, that thing. He suggested, well, Your Honor, you should definitely be harsh with her, maybe not kill her, but maybe you should banish her because she has disobeyed the king. <coughs> she has disobeyed her husband. And what if all the other women decide this is a good idea? My wife will disobey me. I'll never get my tea on time. And all the other wives across the land will disobey their husbands, and there will be marital strife. Society will collapse. No, you must do her very heartily. Banish her, and then, if it pleases your majesty, why don't you hold a great beauty pageant 
and call all beautiful young women to the palace, and from them you can choose yourself a new, more obedient queen. What do you think? It does indeed please the king very much. I will do exactly as you have said. Yes, <coughs> Queen Vashti is banished. And then he sent an edict across the land inviting all beautiful young women to the palace. And they came from far and wide to take part in the world's largest beauty pageant. And it was much better than America's top model. Because none of them ever get to be queen. So there they were, queuing up outside the palace doors. And there was a girl watching who lived just a stone's throw from the palace. Her name was Esther. Esther. As it, was, as it says, was lovely in form and feature. Esther lived with her cousin, Mordecai. Mordecai had taken her in when she was young because both of her parents had died, and he brought her up as his own. Mordecai and Esther were Jews. Their ancestors, their great-grandfather before them, had come from Israel. They'd been brought into exile and now Esther and Mordecai lived among strangers in the Persian Empire. As I said, Esther was lovely in form and feature, so she too was taken into the palace to take part in the beauty pageant. Now, chaps, you may have had to wait 10 minutes, 20 minutes, maybe even an hour for your wife, girlfriend, mother, daughter to get ready in the bathroom. But that was nothing compared to what these girls went through. They spent a year in the bathroom, <laughs> literally. They were oiled, scrubbed, exfoliated, preened, primped, plucked, waxed, painted, combed, to within an inch of their lives. And the idea was that after this year, they would be ready, finally, to be presented towards the king, one at a time. And the king would choose the one he liked, and that one became the queen. Simples. The time came for Esther to be presented before the king. And so she stood in the throne room with her beautiful silken robes, her glossy hair, her radiant skin. And when the king saw her, he had to stop himself from drooling. She was gorgeous. She was definitely his favorite. And so he called the fine golden crown, he bade her come forward and he set it upon her head. You are my new queen. I proclaim this day Queen Esther Day. Let there be wine, let there be feasting, let there be merriment. And so we could say here, if we were telling a love story or perhaps a story of orphan girl becomes queen, we could say that they all lived happily ever after. But this is a story about faith, a story about courage, a story about deliverance. And in order for all of those things to happen, in order to have a really good story, you need a good dose of evil. So, are you ready for me to reveal the darker side of the palace? Can you speak like this, anyone? <laughs> No, that's the wrong tone, darling. <laughs> and so, in the palace, well, on the edges of the city, there was a gate called the King's Gate, and Mordecai was there one night. One dark, gloomy night. The shadows 
there were two guards, and he overheard their conspiratorial conversation. Oi, big farner, what dish? You know what? This is my seventh night on duty in a row without a break. Never. Yeah, and I ain't got paid no overtime neither. I'm not surprised. We get paid absolute peanuts in this place. We get treated like rubbish. There's the king up in his palace in all his finery, showing off all his wealth. Do we see any of it? No. Well, I'm sick and tired of it. I'm not going to be downtrodden by this king. No, I am a new kind of man. I am going to stand up, rise up. And I, with your help, I'm going to kill the king. You in for it? When Mordecai heard this, he went straight to Esther, and Esther reported it immediately. And when Bigthana and Teresh were investigated, they were found guilty, and they were hanged on the gallows. And all of this was written down in the Chronicles of the King, great big book. And that was that, job done. Enter stage left, the real baddie. His name was Haman. Haman was ruthless. Haman was ambitious. Haman was evil. Can we have a big boo? Ready? Boo. Haman had slimed and squirmed his way to the top of the palace through trickery and deceit. And now he had convinced the king that he was the best thing since peeled grapes. The king decided to honor him above all the other officials. He made him his second in command, his right-hand man, and he told everyone that when Haman went out into the streets that they must kneel and pay him honor. Out walked Haman, puffed up with pride. He smiled smugly as everybody knelt before him. <clears throat> yeah, can you get on the floor? No, no. <laughs> Everybody bowed before him, all except one. No, Ben, this one here. <laughs> Dad. This man stood straight as a poker. Haman coughed. <clears throat> he must have forgotten to kneel, but the man just stood taller. Haman stared. He stared back. Who is this man who dares to defy me? It is Mordecai, your honor, a Jew. A Jew? Huh? A Jew, you say? Hmm. And now a very sinister plot began to unfurl in Haman's mind. You see, Haman was, a, was an Amalekite, and the Amalekites were long-standing enemies of the Israelites, going way back to the exodus from Egypt. Now Haman had a chance to get his revenge. Now he had the power to do what he wanted. And so this plot hatched. And the next time he was in the king's presence, he sidled up closely. And with his forked tongue, he began to tell tales of a people. A people who were disobeying the king's commands. A people who should not be tolerated. A people who should be disposed of. Well, the king trusted Haman for some unknown reason, and he handed over his signet ring, giving Haman the authority to do what he wanted. And so that day, an edict was written. It was signed, sealed, and delivered, and sent out to the whole 
of the Persian Empire, and it read, On the 13th day of the 12th month of this year, all Jews, old and young, women and children, will be slaughtered and annihilated. That night, the king and her man sat down to drink, but the rest of the land was bewildered. When Mordecai read the edict, he tore his clothes. He knew that it was his defiance of her man that had caused this to happen. He tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went out into the streets of the city, and he wailed, and he mourned, and he cried out. And when Esther heard about what was happening to Mordecai, she wondered what was going on. Because Esther was secluded away in the, king, in the queen's quarters, she didn't know anything of this edict. She didn't know anything about the fate of her people. So when she heard about Mordecai, she sent clothes with a messenger. Put some clothes on. Stop being so embarrassing. Go and hide away. But Mordecai sent her a copy of the edict and said this message. Esther, please, go and plead for mercy with the king. Go into the king's presence and plead for mercy. But Esther was afraid. Mordecai, you know that anyone who goes into the king's presence will be killed immediately, unless he's feeling merciful and extends the golden scepter. But I've not been into the king's presence for over 30 days now. I've fallen out of favor, surely. I can't do it. Well, when Mordecai heard this, he sent this reply. Esther, don't think that you alone out of all the Jews will be saved just because you are there in your comfort in the queen's palace. You could stay there if you want in comfort and the Jews will be delivered in another way. But don't you think that you may have come to this royal position for such a time as this? <coughs> Mordecai's words cut to the heart. Esther knew what she must do and she said to Mordecai, Go and pray for me. Spend three days. Gather our family. Gather the people in the city, the Jews in the city, and pray and fast for me. And I will do the same, and my maidservants too. And after three days, I will go to the king. And if I die, I die. And so, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes. And she made that long walk towards the king's throne room. She stood at the closed doors, and she nodded for them to be opened. Inside, the king was snoozing on his throne. <laughs> and when the doors were opened, he woke with a start. <clears throat> what? What? Oh. When he saw Esther standing there in all her beauty, he remembered what a wonderful wife he had. I'd forgotten really how very beautiful she is. And without thinking, he brought out the golden scepter and extended it to her. Esther, with a huge sigh of relief, walked slowly forward and she bowed before the king. And the king said, Esther, my queen, what is your petition? Ask me for anything. I will give you anything up to half my kingdom. And Esther said, if it pleases your highness, come and dine with me tonight with Haman. Very well. I will do so indeed, Haman, and I will be there when you please. And so that night they sat and they dined. They ate wonderful food. They drank lovely wine. And the king asked Esther again, what is it that you want? Anything up to half the kingdom, I will give it to you. And Esther said, 
Well, if you come tomorrow to dine with me, Your Highness, then I will tell you. Very well. And so they parted ways, and Haman made his way home. Haman was on top of the world. I feel pretty, oh so pretty. I feel pretty and witty and light, and I pity any man who isn't me tonight. I was the only one who was invited to the banquet, only me. I'm the most special. He was singing his way home. But then he passed Mordecai, who was sitting at the king's gate. And did Mordecai? Stand. Did Mordecai show any honor? No, Mordecai stared him right in the face, and it was just this look of defiance. Haman nearly went for him right that very minute, but restrained himself and went home. When he got home, he gathered his family around him, his wife, his friends, his sons, and he was showing off. I'm one of the richest men in the world, next to the king. I'm the richest. I've got ten fine sons, I have this land, and I was the only one who got invited to the banquet with the king and queen. But can I enjoy any of this while Mordecai is defying me? No. What am I going to do? Well, his wife, Zeresh, said, why don't you kill him, my dear? Then you'll feel much better. <laughs> Good idea. And so he had a gallows, 75 foot tall, erected in his garden. And he had decided that that night he would go and ask the king whether he could hang Mordecai on it the next morning. Meanwhile, the king couldn't sleep. He tried counting camels, he tried a warm bath and hot milk, but no. I know. I need something to read. Something really boring. Ha! The chronicle of the kings, that'll send me to sleep. He had it brought to him, and he began to read, Man, riches, splendor. Oh, the opening ceremony of the Pan-Persian elephant race? I don't remember that one. <laughs> ah, the visit from the Queen of Timbuktu. She was an attractive lady. Yes, yes, la-la-da-da-da. What's this? Mordecai saved my life. And what did Mordecai get for saving my life? Nothing? Oh, dear. We must rectify this at once. Now, I need an advisor. Where can you find an advisor at this time of night? When it just so happened that her man walked into the palace just at that moment. Ah, her man! Perfect timing. Come on in. Now, her man, I have a question for you. What should the king do for the man he delights to honor? Oh, your highness, you are too kind. <laughs> you should have. I tell you what, you could maybe um, give him a king's robe to wear. And maybe you could sit him on a horse, the king's horse. Hmm? Oh, and then, then you could have one of the finest princes lead him around the city, shouting, this is what the king does for the man he delights to honor. Excellent idea. Go fetch Mordecai at once. Mordecai? The Jew? Yes. Oh, and as you came up with the idea, why don't you lead him around the city? Great! Oh. The next day was not the best day for Haman. He watched Mordecai put on the king's robe, be lifted onto the king's horse, and then he took the reins and he walked around the city saying, This is what the king does for the man he delights to honor. We can't hear you. This is what the king does for the man he delights to honor. And he had to say it very many times because it was a big city. 
And by the end of the day, as soon as he could get away, he ran home, his head hung in shame. He got home and he told his wife all about it. This time, though, his wife didn't have any good advice. She said, I've got a funny feeling about this, you know, husband. I've got this awful, foreboding sense that this man's a Jew, isn't he, Mordecai? And it seems like you might be fighting a losing battle. With those words ringing in his ears, Haman was taken to the banquet. Well, the banquet that night was a slightly different affair. Haman was there, downcast. Esther was quiet and thoughtful. Only the king was drinking wine and wondering what was going on. Esther, what's troubling you? Tell me what's wrong. I will give you anything you want, up to half of the kingdom. Esther summoned up her courage. If it pleases the king, I ask you to spare my life and the life of all my people, for we have been sold into destruction and annihilation. What? Who would do this? Who would dare to kill my queen? Show me. Who, who, who is it? Which man? Which man? And Esther pointed across the table. This is my adversary, my enemy, this vile Haman. The king stood up from the table, rage rising inside him. He thumped his fist down, he threw his wine on the floor, and he stormed out. But Haman knew that his fate was sealed. He saw Esther there reclining on the couch, and he went and fell on, on her, and he said, please, please, please have mercy on me. I didn't know you were a Jew. I didn't know it. I would never want to kill you. Please, please. While he was doing this, the king came back in and seeing Haman falling on the queen, he said, Will you molest my wife while I am gone? You will get you what is coming to you, Haman. And a little voice popped up from the corner. <clears throat> Excuse me, sire. There is a gallows that's just been put up in Haman's house. 75 foot tall it is. He'd intended it to be used for Mordecai. You remember the man who saved your life? Just a suggestion. <clears throat> Hang him on it! Yes! thundered the king. And so, that day, Haman was hung on the gallows that he had intended for Mordecai. And Esther was given all of Haman's estates. And Esther told the king about Mordecai, that they were related. And so the king brought Mordecai into his presence. And taking the signet ring, the same one that he'd given to Haman, he gave it to Mordecai, put it on his finger, making Mordecai the second in command, the right-hand man. And Esther gave all of Haman's estates over to Mordecai. But the 13th day of the 12th month, was still looming. The Jews were still set for annihilation and destruction. So Esther went again to the king and she pleaded with him for mercy. But he explained that he couldn't repeal the law. He couldn't revoke it, but that he could write another. So this time, it was Mordecai who wrote the edict. And it said that the Jews would be able to arm themselves and defend themselves against their enemies on that day. And the, the edict was signed and sealed and delivered and sent out to all parts of the country. And then a strange thing happened. There seemed to come over the whole of Persia a fear of the Jews. People became Jews in their droves. 
And when it came to that day, the 13th day of the 12th month, all of the Jews' enemies, they were ready and armed. They went out to fight the Jews. But when they got there, they saw not just the Jews, but the king's administrators, the king's governors, the satraps, the nobles. These people had sided with the Jews and so overpowered the Jews' enemies. And on that day, the Jews were saved from destruction. All because Esther had been brave enough to go into the king's presence. Now go right away and read the story later. It's all there, apart from the best things since peeled grapes. Don't remember that bit, but uh, the rest of it it, it, is all there. Now, Rest assured, I'm not about to launch into a 40-minute sermon at this point. I merely want to invite you back over the next couple of months where we're going to be learning a whole lot of lessons from this particular story. Although it's written many years ago, pretty ancient history, listening to the story, you may be thinking, well, not quite sure how that connects with us today. I assure you there are plenty of lessons to be learned from the story of Esther, for starters. It's got so much to teach us about how to live in a society or in a culture which is dominated by spiritual and moral values that are completely at odds with what we believe. What do we do in that kind of a context? Do we separate ourselves from the society, from the culture, go and live separate from them, or do we throw ourselves in completely and become like the society or the culture in which we live? Or do we find another route? The story of Esther shows us a way through. Also teaches us about another area. What it's got a whole lot to say about how to keep going when it seems like God is completely silent or perhaps even absent altogether. You know, God is never mentioned by name through the whole book of Esther. And yet beneath the surface, so obviously at work and in our lives, Often we can think, well, God isn't here, and yet beneath the surface, so much at work. Provides some fascinating insights into how to be a woman in a male-dominated society. If you are a woman, that is. If you're a bloke, then not so helpful for you. But lots to learn as a woman in a male-dominated society. It's particularly pertinent in his comments about how to pursue social justice, what to do when you see unrighteousness and people suffering. How do you handle that? Some challenges in the story for us today. He's got some huge lessons about how to carry significant influence and responsibility with integrity. If there are people, even in the room today, who God has placed in specific positions and there are reasons why he's placed you there and exploits he has for you to do, just as he had for Esther all those centuries ago. I'll tell you, the story of Esther throws a whole lot of light on how to follow God in morally and spiritually ambiguous situations where you're kind of flying blind and you haven't a clue what's the right thing to do. You, you turn to the Bible and you think, well, it doesn't actually talk about this situation. It's not really so black or white. What do you do? How do you make decisions in those contexts? What's right? What's wrong? The story of Esther provides some really helpful insight in how to conduct yourself 
in those kind of situations. Those are some of the things we're going to be finding out over the next few weeks, next couple of months, as we work through the story of Esther together.